Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So apart from March being Women's History Month, it's also, of course, time for basketball and March Madness. I am not a basketball fan, uh, though I do actually like playing basketball, just not so much watching it. So my knowledge of March Madness is very, very limited. I I know it's happening. That's about it. So (laughs) Lauren, I know you've been watching the games. You're a basketball fan. Catch me up. What do I need to know about March Madness? Well, Virginia, I am actually just a March Madness fan. (laughs) I don't watch basketball any other time of the year, but I get absolutely obsessed with March Madness and it is pretty much everything I want for three or four days at a time it'll just be basketball from noon to 10 Um, and I I just I love games I love rooting for the underdogs and this year is the year of the underdog the big news on the first day of the tournament was that Oral Roberts University beat Ohio State so they were a huge underdog then they played the Florida Gators which I do root for being from Florida and they beat the Florida Gators so they're going to the next round and they're just one of I think four or five under 10 seeds who are advancing in the tournament. And that just never happens. So do you have a prediction for who's going to win? You know, I filled out a bracket and it's so busted that I, I I literally forgot about it already. And I'm just, I'm in it for the games. Like I just, I watch them one at a time and yeah, it's, it's just, it's so much fun. Like anything can happen. I guess I really need to get into this because hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I feel like I'm I'm missing something. <laughs> yeah. And it's not a long-term commitment. It's like a two-week commitment. And yeah, but the only thing that I'm mad about is, you know, there was three or four days of just basketball. You know, I would wake up, you know, do my chores and watch basketball every day this weekend. And Monday, I hope my bosses aren't listening to this, but Monday, you know, I'm doing my work and I have March Madness up in the corner of the screen and it's just, you know, just like a fun thing. And then Tuesday, there's no games. Wednesday, no games. Thursday, no games. There's no games until Saturday. So I feel like, you know, I was, I was so hooked and now I'm, I'm on withdrawal, but I'm really excited Saturday. Uh, It's coming back. Yep. I will be spending my weekend watching March Madness. All right. Well, maybe I should watch a game. I was excited to see that Oral Roberts got in. It's like, oh, that's cool. It, it's always cool to see the underdogs do well. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. 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 Pretty neat. But all right. March Madness. Need to get into it. But <laughs> we'll, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we finish our Women's History Month series with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. Ernst discussed her military service, America's military readiness, and what you need to know about the situation at America's southern border. Plus, our friend Kelsey Bowler joins the show to discuss a brand new Daily Signal documentary she is producing. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it.
I am so pleased to be joined this morning by Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you, Virginia. Great to be with you. So I want to begin by talking a little bit about your story before becoming a senator. You actually served in the military for over 23 years. What was that driving force that made you decide, you know, I want to serve my country by serving in the military? Well, I have always appreciated folks that engaged in public service, and this was one way that I could give back to my communities, to my state. I served in the Army Reserves for a number of years and finished out my career in the Iowa Army National Guard. I deployed overseas as a company commander leading 150 soldiers in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, towards the end of my career, then was a battalion commander. I really enjoyed it. But again, just to be able to serve my country, serve my community and my state uh, was very, very important to me. And how do you feel like that military service has affected the way that you lead as a senator? (laughs) Well, I would say that it has made me tougher, uh, maybe than uh, most senators that might get a little prickly at, at, at any sort of situation. I think by serving in the military, you are faced with a number of very stressful situations, Uh, situations that could be, especially during a time of war, you know, life or death. And so uh, understanding the gravity, the weight of those decisions and having that experience before I came into the United States Senate has really been very, very beneficial to me. Um, I've developed a lot of scar tissue over the years um, from, you know, all the different activities through the military. And it just made me a much tougher person in the United States Senate, knowing when to stand up and fight and and when to try and find uh, different types of solutions. That's so critical. Well, you are a member of the Armed Services Committee, and you recently co-authored a piece for The Hill talking about the Biden administration's decision to hold America's defense budget flat for the next fiscal year. Why does this concern you? Well, this does, it does concern me, and it should concern every American as well. Our federal government is charged with, um, with the national security, the protection of our citizens. That is number one. And so it is very concerning that President Biden would want to keep our defense budget flat, especially at a time when we are trying to make up, build up our military after years and years of neglect during the Obama administration. Just keeping up with normal maintenance activities is so important. And the military was barely able to do that during uh, Obama's tenure. So we really have to play catch up now and we're recommending of course um with heritage uh three to five percent over inflation to catch up and get where we need to be in order to compete with our near-peer adversaries communist china russia iran north korea we need to be able to engage in a space and outpace our competitors and we can't do that with a flat defense budget Talk a little bit more about America's military readiness compared with nations 
like China? Because I, I recently learned some uh, some facts about that, and I was a little bit interested. I think you know, as an American, we kind of automatically assume that um, you know our military readiness is probably number one, uh, and it's a little bit discouraging actually to find out where we fall. It is. It is discouraging, and again, this is why we cannot have a flat defense budget. Um, and just comparatively, Russia is very focused on the Arctic and icebreakers, and they have many, many icebreakers. And the United States, we're just really starting to invest in that part of the globe. And then for China, rapidly building up a naval, uh, a naval fleet that will rival any of any of their competitors um, and trying to keep up, you know, we need to be able to produce ships. We need to have the defense budget to, to support that and push them out. And then in areas that most Americans don't think about, artificial intelligence, hypersonics, um, all of that is very, very important, but it takes research dollars in order for us to get there and compete with those near-peer adversaries. And in some of those areas, they are outpacing us. That is absolutely unacceptable. So what is your message to the Biden administration? My message to the Biden administration is to rely on those military experts. Please lean on the Pentagon to figure out how we can be competitive in this space. It doesn't mean that the Pentagon should get a pass when it comes to things like transparency and, of course, you know, managing your budget well. Uh, that is absolutely necessary, but at the same time, we need to have the, the budget that will allow us to push dollars into research and development so that we can be that outpacing nation rather than just barely trying to keep up with our adversaries. So we need to invest. We need to invest wisely, make smart decisions on the areas where we can move forward figure out some of the outdated legacy programs that are not getting us where we need to be in this global space. Um, those can go by the wayside, but we really do need to invest in the new technologies in order to keep up. Yeah. Well, one of the other areas that I know many Americans are concerned about right now is what's happening on our southern border. The White mm -hmm. House has finally admitted that we do have a crisis on our southern border Thousands of immigrants are arriving at the border daily now. How is the Biden administration handling the situation at the border? The Biden administration is not handling the crisis at the border, and that is very unfortunate, where they have rolled back through executive action a number of the policies that were put into place by the Trump administration and policies that were working, you know, policies such as requiring individuals seeking asylum to apply in their home country, keep them there, don't let them make that dangerous journey to our southern border. Order. You know, pushing back on those that are bringing children into the country and then just releasing them to our interior. All of those policies have been rolled back under President Joe Biden. And unfortunately, that is encouraging the massive flow of migrants that we see right now. Um, so they are not handling it well. Uh, but what they could do is, again, put in place a number of the measures that they've already rolled back 
we know we need to focus on reforming immigration and immigration policy. That's important to all of us. But simply giving a free pass to anyone that crosses the border is not the right approach. We need to make sure that we're securing the border uh, properly vetting the, those that are coming into the United States and making sure that it is for the benefit of our states and our nation. You say that it was unlawful for President Biden to suspend construction of the border wall. Why do you feel like that was an unlawful action? That was approved by Congress. And the president does not have the ability to stop projects that are authorized and approved by Congress. Uh, the dollars were there. The dollars were being spent on these uh, southern border projects. The president just can't roll into office and decide, I'm going to undo what Congress did. He does not have the authority to do that. I do believe it was an illegal action. Let's chat a little bit about uh, your role on the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. Small businesses in Iowa and across the country are working hard right now to recover from the pandemic. How are you working to support small businesses in your own home state? Yes, and in Iowa, of course, about uh, 98 99% of our employers are small businesses. So it is really important. And we see this in many other states as well that uh, you know we really need to reach out, support those small businesses. They have suffered tremendously through COVID-19. So on the Small Business Committee, of course, one of the most important programs that we were able to really push out to those small businesses was the Paycheck Protection Program. It has been wildly successful, um, especially especially in the state of Iowa. And what we are focusing on now is reforming some of the ways that we did business um, previously within the Paycheck Protection Program. One of the initiatives that I have, a correction I would like to see, of course, is that Schedule C and Schedule F filers are able to use the, the gross amount of income rather than net income to calculate their loan amounts. This would provide a greater opportunity for those small businesses. Even if they had used the loan program in the past, we would like to make that correction so that they can go back, file, uh, file differently, and hopefully get a little bit larger loan amount. Um, I've seen loan amounts as small as $80. And that really doesn't get you very far. So we really do need to go back and make a correction. Yeah, $80. That does very little for a small business owner. Wow. <laughs> now, why are small businesses such a critical part of a free and fair society? Well, it is important because it allows those that have ideas and want to turn those into opportunities, it allows them to engage in entrepreneurship and really determine their own destiny. We have so many people that really have phenomenal ideas. They have hopes and dreams. They want to be their own boss. And believe me, they are the economic engines out there creating jobs across the board, not only for themselves providing income for their families, but then as they can grow and expand, providing opportunity for others to be employed at their small businesses as well. Uh, we find that small businesses can be very flexible 
also, which is really important, especially to some employees that maybe have young families or so forth. But we really need to make sure that we are protecting our small businesses. You know, it's the epitome of the American dream to be able to own and operate your own business. And that's why I'm so glad that uh, Iowans are heavily invested in small business. Yeah, um, that really is so, so critical. Now, Senator, if, if you, this is sort of a, a fun, lighter question. If you could go back in time and if you could give your 25-year-old or your 30-year-old self a piece of advice, what would that be? You know, I, there's a lot I have learned over the past couple of decades that I would love, uh, you know, advice to give to my 25 or 30 year old self. But I think primarily it would be just to trust your gut, trust your instinct and, and know that you are uh, really a subject matter expert in the things that you are passionate about. And don't, just don't question yourself. I've done that so many times through my career where I stop and I'm like, my first instinct is to do ABC, but everybody else is saying maybe we should do XYZ. Well, then after doing XYZ, you find out you really should have gone with ABC. So I would say, you know, trust your gut, know that your instinct is right and it will carry you through. Just drive on, do the right thing, do what's appropriate for you. Mm, that's wisdom. I love that. Because we all have a tendency to do that, don't we? To second guess ourselves. And Absolutely. it's usually that first instinct that is the right answer. <laughs> Senator, final question before we let you go. We love to ask all of our guests on this show whether or not they consider themselves a feminist. We get so many different, so many different answers and responses, but do you consider yourself a feminist and why or why not? Yeah, I guess I do, but I don't know what a typical definition of a feminist is. To me, especially as we talk about, you know, what's a woman's role out there? Well, I do believe that women can compete with men, you know, whether it is in, uh, you know, private companies, whether it is in the military, whether it is in government service, elected office, I think women can do all of those things. And so often during my first campaign for United States Senate, you know, it was it was pointed out that, you know, oh, women's issues, you should focus on women's issues. And I was like, women's issues, you mean like national defense and the economy, those are women's issues. Um, so I, I guess, I, you know, feminist, it depends on what the definition is, but to me, it just is really, allowing women to choose their own path. If you want to be a homemaker, for heaven's sakes, be a homemaker. If you want to be a CEO, for heaven's sakes, be a CEO. You know, we can compete no matter what it is, but I think women have all kinds of paths and, and careers that we can choose from. We have all kinds of different ideas. And if that's what a feminist is, I guess I would say I'm a feminist. Great answer. I love it. Senator, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Virginia. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Now stay tuned for Lauren's conversation with Kelsey Bowler as they chat about the brand new Daily Signal documentary coming out soon. 
But first, I want to tell you all about an awesome Heritage Foundation resource called the Index of Economic Freedom. The Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom ranks nearly every nation in the world according to its level of economic freedom. Whether for personal, professional, or school research, the index is a wealth of information. You can learn why it's easier to start a business in Switzerland than it is in France and where America falls on the ranking, which sadly, it might be a little bit lower than you would think. So go ahead and visit heritage.org slash index to explore the newly released 2021 Index of Economic Freedom, which features interactive maps, country rankings, graphs of data, and much, much more. Welcome back. We have a real treat for you today. We have friend of the show and friend of ours, Kelsey Bowler. Welcome, Kelsey. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Kelsey is a senior policy analyst with the Independent Women's Forum and a senior news producer here at The Daily Signal. As part of Kelsey's role with The Daily Signal, she produces documentaries. Kelsey and the multimedia team here have been working together on a new documentary following the story of a man named Patrick Driscoll. Kelsey, can you let us know a little bit about Patrick? Absolutely. Well, Patrick lives out in Salt Lake City. He grew up there, and he lived a relatively normal childhood. His parents did get divorced at a young age, uh, and he was mostly raised by his mother. And at the age of 19, he faced a rare infectious influenza Uh, that caused his airway to be blocked off. He ended up going without adequate oxygen for somewhere between five and possibly up to 15 minutes. And this left him mostly paralyzed. He's technically classified as a spastic quadriplegic with a vision impairment and a seizure disorder. Patrick is now 55 years old and relies on the help of in-home caregivers for his most basic needs, from getting him out of bed to uh, showering to preparing his food, he has very he cannot he cannot walk. Uh, he has very very limited movement in his hands, um, and to the point that you know his caregivers every morning put on a headset so that he can talk on the phone. Um, but you know he's severely disabled, and the reason we got in touch with him and ended up uh, telling his story through this documentary is because COVID-19 has not only negative impacted him in similar ways as it has everybody else throughout the country, if not the entire world, but it uh, he says it has caused many of his in-home caregivers to either quit or regularly show up very late Uh, to the point that he is being left immobile in his bed in the morning, which can have pretty devastating consequences for him since he is unable to move once his caregivers put him to bed in the evening. The reason he says that his caregivers are quitting or showing up so late is because the company that employs them is so short-staffed because Congress passed these very, very generous COVID-19 unemployment benefits at the rate of $600 a week on top of regular state-based unemployment benefits 
And we have multiple analysis by different um, universities and, and private sector companies, including the University of Chicago, that have found that some 68% of uh, American workers are able to earn more income through these extra COVID unemployment benefits than they are just working their traditional jobs. So what Patrick is saying is that a lot of his caregivers are quitting to collect this unemployment insurance, and that is leaving those who are still on staff, understaffed, and unable to perform their work on time, leaving him in bed for an extra two hours every morning, which just put yourself in his shoes for one second. You cannot get up, move, use the bathroom, do anything. Once you're put in bed in the evening, you are waiting for that caregiver to show up in the morning. They are supposed to show up for Patrick around 7.30 a.m. And Patrick says they are regularly showing up two hours late, which uh, is very dangerous because he needs to take his uh, seizure medication on time every morning. And then Patrick says it's flat out embarrassing because uh, he is a grown man and he unfortunately can only hold his bladder so long. No grown-up wants to knowingly pee their own bed. So we all have a lot of sympathy for Patrick, and it's important for his story to be told because, sadly, he's not alone here. Um, these COVID unemployment benefits we're finding are having a lot of negative unintended consequences. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's such, it's a complicated story, Kelsey, so I really appreciate you taking the time to break down the issues like that, but it, it's so important and it's so powerful. And one other aspect that I would want to bring up is it has such a love your neighbor. Pat, so when Patrick's laying in bed, his caregivers don't show up, his neighbors have to come and, and help him use the bathroom and you think he's lived in the same neighborhood for 30 years and he's created relationships with these people and his neighbors will, you know, at his call come and help him. And just, I think it it shows the human spirit and and what I think so many people are really missing and, 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 you know, they're so lonely in this COVID season. Right, Lauren. And I know you won't give yourself uh, the credit, but I, you and some members of uh, our Daily Signal video team were out in Salt Lake City and had the opportunity to meet Patrick and also meet his neighbors who, yes, often have to show up and rescue him, help him get to the bathroom when his caregivers don't show up. Uh, he is very grateful for that. Patrick is a man that does not enjoy having to rely on the help of others to fulfill his most basic needs. It's actually uh, very sad. He, he told us that uh, when this illness happens, he actually wishes the doctors had just pulled the plug. I want to clarify that does not mean he's suicidal today, uh, but it goes to show how difficult this uh, life with these disabilities is for him. And <laughs> He, um, you know, for a long time after recovery, had to live in a nursing home with elderly patients because that was the only facility equipped to take care of uh, his severity of disabilities. He worked so hard through rehab uh, and logistically to be able to live semi-independently in his own apartment and not have to live in a nursing home with people far beyond his age. 
um, this gives him a quality of life that he cannot have in a uh, in a facility such as a nursing home. And so it is so important for him to maintain his independence uh, through living in his own apartment in Salt Lake City, a city he grew up in and, and knows every crack of the sidewalks. And, and although he's legally blind, he is still able to get himself around the city because he knows it so well. He because of what's happening, he really wouldn't be able to live alone in Salt Lake City right now if it weren't for these neighbors that you brought up. Um, they have had to come help him on multiple occasions when his caregivers don't show up on time, when he's faced with the prospect of, um, you know, he has a full bladder and no other choice. So absolutely, there, um, you know, there are some beautiful components in this story of uh, the fact that there are still some good people out there who are, you know, willing to get up early in the morning and help this um, severely disabled man, uh, you know, get out of bed and do what he needs to do. Um, so that is, that is extremely encouraging. But, you know, hearing his story is just, it's enraging. This shouldn't be happening. A severely disabled man shouldn't be left in his bed, you know, on <laughs> on a regular occasion uh, without the help of his caregivers, who he has hired to help him perform these basic bodily functions. And Kelsey, this documentary is different than documentaries we've produced in the past because it is a partnership between the Independence Women Forum and the Daily Signal. Can you talk about what that partnership looks like and what it means to you to be producing a documentary that with two organizations that, that you love and you work for every day? Yeah, this has been a special project to me uh, because uh, I never really left Daily Signal. I still very much feel a part of the team there. Um, you know, I like to say I kind of just grew my circle in working with Independent Women's Forum. And it was actually my colleague at Independent Women's Forum who heard about this story and uh, told me about it. I decided I wanted to pursue it. Uh, Daily Signal, we know, has a special talent for telling these stories. Uh, your video team that you, Lauren, oversee is extremely um, talented and uh, qualified to, uh, you know, help Americans understand these types of stories and why they're so important. And so we saw this as a great opportunity for Independent Women's Forum and Daily Signal to team up, tell this story, uh, hopefully allow it to reach an even broader audience than it would if it were just produced only for the Daily Signal or only for Independent Women's Forum. Um, it's it's a story that I know both organizations care about. It has such a human component, but a very important policy component that, you know, statistics just don't tell the whole story. You read these statistics from University of Chicago that 68% of American workers can make greater income collecting COVID unemployment benefits than they can working their traditional job. You know, maybe that sounds off, but it doesn't really stick with you. Well, hearing the consequences of these COVID unemployment benefits on a man like Patrick, it's, it's really an unforgettable story, and it puts a face to these policy issues and helps all of us understand why, you know, this perhaps well-intended uh, government policy 
is actually having the reverse effect on individuals such as Patrick. Well, I can't wait for this documentary to go out. I can't wait for the people to see it. Kelsey, it was a pleasure to speak with you today, and it's a pleasure to work with you every day on productions like this. I encourage all of our listeners to make sure you're subscribed to The Daily Signal and IWF on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. The documentary will be releasing sometime next week, and as long as you get the notifications, you'll be the first one to see it. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, Lauren. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Bluey, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Megan Kelly. We wanted to end our Women's History Month series honoring Megan because she is and has been such a bold voice of common sense in the media for a really long time. Megan has experienced her fair share of opposition as she has sought to tell the truth as a journalist, but her commitment to the truth is so needed in this day and age. In an interview with E! a few years ago, Kelly was asked what advice she would give to a young woman, and here's what she had to say. You're going to have to develop a thick skin, and there are going to be plenty of bumps along the way. But as I tell my team, especially the young women, head down, shoulders back, forge forward. I love that so much. It's it's almost a joke now that in conversation with my friends, I'm always like, well, Megan Kelly said this on her podcast on <laughs> the other day. Um, so uh, I'm so glad we're honoring her. And this whole Women's History Month series has been so much fun. So interesting to learn about women's history and just all these women who stand up for the truth and aren't afraid to be independent and sometimes go against the grain. Definitely inspires me. And... You know, I just hope that we continue to honor these women throughout the entire year. Yeah, no, it, it is good just to like pause and reflect on, I think, the hard work that these women have put in in order to have the influence that they do, um, their boldness, their courage, and, you know, to look at people like, you know, Senator Ernst, who served in the military, and then individuals like Megyn Kelly, who have really pioneered that, that journalist space and uh, have been so, so bold and don't shrink back from the truth. It's really inspiring and definitely challenging for me. So huge congrats to Megan Kelly. Yeah, definitely very appropriate problematic woman of the week. And it's not too late. Go to the Daily Signal Instagram page and you can see every day this month we had been honoring a woman and with different animations and videos. It's such fun content. So it's not just problematic women. The entire organization has been honoring women this month. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. 
It really does make a difference. Have a great week and Lauren and I will be back with you next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.